Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We are sorry, deeply and truly sorry. That's the whole purpose of these hearings. This, of course, is Dennis Mullenberg. He's the CEO of Boeing, which is one of the biggest dividend-paying companies in the world. Behind him is a lot of the victims' families of these two plane crashes. He's in front of Congress to show that Boeing as a company is sorry. That is the main thing that he has to convince them of. He needs to show that Boeing cares about the victims, that they care about the loss of life, that they're not just focused on company profits or getting their stock prices up. The worst thing that he could do in this hearing is come off as uncaring, as robotic or unsympathetic or detached from what happened. If he comes off that way, this hearing would be a total disaster. If he shows true contrition and sorrow for the accidents, then he's going to come out okay on this. That is what this whole thing comes down to. Congress, they're not going to solve anything with the airplanes. They're not going to write new laws. They don't understand the aviation industry enough to even begin to do that. Boeing is going to fix this plane. They have their engineers scrutinizing it. It's going to be the most heavily scrutinized plane to ever fly. And they know that if they have another plane crash for any issue that is remotely related to this, the company would be damaged beyond repair. They're not going to let that happen. So the whole purpose of this meeting is for Dennis Mullenberg to show that Boeing cares about the families that were affected by this, that they care about the victims, and they care about repairing public trust. That is the whole purpose of it. And we can look and see how Boeing did these two days in front of Congress. Now, as this hearing went on, I think what investors in Boeing, shareholders of Boeing are looking for is to see if Dennis Millenberg, if he can withstand the rebukes and the lashings that he gets from Congress. That's really what it was. Investors want to see, is Congress going to be able to do long-lasting damage to Boeing, like they've done with Wells Fargo and other big companies that they've had before them? Or is this something that Boeing is going to be able to recover from? Is this something that's going to damage Boeing? And what I'll do is I'll just play a couple clips of what I think are the most damaging moments, the biggest rebukes that Congress gave Boeing and Dennis Millenberg. Boeing came to my office shortly after these crashes and said they were the result of pilot error. Those pilots never had a chance. These loved ones never had a chance. They were in flying coffins as a result of Boeing deciding that it was going to conceal MCAS from the pilots. Senator Blumenthal just called the airplanes that Boeing manufactures flying coffins. That is a pretty harsh rebuke, but definitely not the worst that Dennis Mullenberg received at this hearing. Here's a clip from Senator Ted Cruz highlighting that message that we talked about in a previous episode where the two pilots are going back and forth saying, yeah, we basically lied to the investigators. Oops. And they said, oh, well, we didn't mean to. That never got revealed until this investigation. What I find most stunning is your testimony here today that you said you first learned of this exchange a couple of weeks ago. These are senior leaders at Boeing in an exchange saying, and I will quote again, so I basically lied to the regulators. 
That exchange that got released between those two pilots is pretty damning. And Ted Cruz here was the first one to really vocalize his frustration of it. But he still was not the one that gave Dennis Millenberg, in particular, the hardest time. You know, they went back and forth. He said, the buck stops at you. You're the one responsible of this. But as this went on, it was like a match for Congress to continually get harder and harder on Dennis Millenberg. The winner of the award of giving Boeing the biggest rebuking has to go to Senator Cohen. He's the one that really looked at Dennis Muhlenberg and brought up resigning, brought up taking a salary cut, doing specific things that would actually affect Dennis Muhlenberg. Let me ask you this, Mr. Muhlenberg. You said you're accountable. What does accountability mean? Are you taking a cut in pay? Are you working for free from now on until you can cure this problem? These people's relatives are not coming back. They're gone. Your salary's still on. Is anybody at Boeing taking a cut or working for free to try to rectify this problem? like the Japanese would do? Congressman, uh, it's not about the money for me. That's not why I came Are you home. giving up any money? Congressman, my uh, board will conduct a comprehensive review. That's so it. you're saying you're not giving up any compensation at all. You're continuing to work and make $30 million a year after this horrific two accidents that caused all these people's relatives to go, to disappear, to die. You're not taking a cut in pay at all? Congressman, again, our board will make those determinations. You're not accountable then. You're saying the board's accountable. Congressman, I am accountable. So this is probably the most fiery rebuking from Senator Cohen here. But I could show a lot more clips like this. There's like a dozen or so. Now, how did this actually affect the stock? If I go over to the Boeing stock line, this is from the past five days. The two days that he was before Congress, the stock price has gone up. It's up from the 28th. The stock price is up a full percentage. So... What this shows is that what Dennis Muhlenberg did, he accomplished what he set out to accomplish. He didn't make the situation drastically worse for Boeing. And for investors, that is just, okay, we have Congress out of the way now. That's a huge hurdle. Things could have gone worse. But getting that hurdle of Congress out of the way, obviously they're seeing that as a positive thing. All right, before I jump into other news items, there's a few other things I want to talk about in the news. But first, I want to give an update on the portfolio. As the thumbnail of this video showed, $65,000. That is what my portfolio just crossed. $65,000 in value. That's a lot of money. You can think about all the different things that I could do with that amount of money. But when I look at this and I see this number, 65000 and I see it growing all the time as I deposit more money, as I get paid more dividends, and I see this compounding take place, it gives me more motivation. Instead of it being 65000 I can't wait till I hit 100000 with it. I can't wait till this gets into the six-figure range and that the dividends coming in are even bigger and bigger. And now the dividends coming in, they are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. These dividends are no longer a dollar here, 50 cents there, 85 cents here. These are pretty substantial dividends that I'm getting paid every single month. So far, I've passed $8,200 in gains. That's another landmark. Let's go and look at the activity feed and see what's going on with this account. If I go in here and I filter just by dividends, let's just look in the past two days, the 31st and the 1st, the past two days. Two days ago, I got paid $28 from Annaly Capital, $13 from JP Morgan Chase, $7 from LTC Properties, $30 from New Residential Investment Corp, $6 from Toronto Dominion Bank. That's one day. In that one day, I made what, $80, $84, $85? And then the next day, November 1st, $27 from AT&T, $13 from Verizon. The two telecoms, they paid out at the same time. 
So Verizon and Telecom, that's another $41. That money, since it's on the weekend, it wasn't reinvested, it's in cash right there, sitting there, $41. That's real money that my portfolio is generating. So in the span of two days, I was paid like $120 in dividends. And that money is the definition of passive income. I'm being paid that money by having ownership in these companies. They pay out their shareholders. They do that routinely. These are dividend growth companies, and they're paying me for owning stock in those companies. Now, this is pretty amazing stuff. To see this money coming, and I can even go past two days and, and go back to the 23rd, the 18th, the 15th, the 7th. I mean, it's every few days I get these dividends coming in, and these aren't really small numbers anymore. A lot of these are $6, $7, $14, $13, $5. When that's every couple of days, it starts to add up. All this money is getting reinvested back in my portfolio, and it's helping me build up this number. Every week, week after week, this value is going up as a result of my dividends buying me more shares. And more importantly, my income is going up. If I look at this, you've all seen this graph before. This shows the amount of dividends I've earned month to month. You might notice the trend line. This continues to go up as my portfolio grows. This number will go up regardless of whether the market goes up or down. As long as companies don't cut their dividends, this number will continue to go up. Last month, I earned $161. I'll find out what I earn when M1 releases their statement later next week, and I'll let you guys know how much I earned in October. So we'll see this graph continually go up as I earn more and more dividends month to month. That is the whole goal of this portfolio. The awesome thing about it is it gives me a feeling now where normally you're just putting money in and then you're earning money you're putting more money in, you're earning money, you have to work for your money and put more money in. And it feels like you're doing this all by yourself. It feels like you're doing all the heavy lifting by yourself. But now it's like, hey, I have my portfolio here. In the past three months, it's like a buddy helping me out. Earn dividends $500. So my portfolio is now like a second helper helping me deposit money into my portfolio. It's like, hey, you don't have to do everything now. Now that you have $65,000 working for you, invested in these productive assets, we're going to help you out a little bit. So in the past three months, we've deposited $500. And those $500 bought more shares. And now I'm going to earn dividends and interest from those shares. And that is the compounding effect. This is what everybody should be working towards. This is the goal that everybody wants to have. You want to have your money working for you. You can't spend your whole life working for yourself. There's no point in doing that. You're going to work so much harder than you need to. Get to the point where you have something else working for you. You can do that. We have the opportunity to go in to continually purchase productive shares of these different companies. And then those companies, the people that clock into them, the people that build these products and sell them, they're working for you now. They're literally employees of your company that you have share in and they're working for you. They disperse the earnings through dividends, and then you're not working all by yourself. In the past three months, I've had $500 added to my portfolio that I did not have to work for. That's not as much as I've put in in the past three months, but it's helpful. That much is helpful, and that will continue to grow. That's the compounding effect. To realize how important this is, you can study how hard assets work. At a certain point, with enough money, if this portfolio gained enough value, it would be a harder worker than I am. It would be more valuable in the marketplace than me as a human with all my skills and trade and experience can be. Meaning the yield of my portfolio would be able to put out more money than I'm capable of earning in the marketplace. And my portfolio in all practicality in the marketplace would be worth more than I am. To illustrate this point, I was looking at this video. This is particularly on a, a political social issue, wealth inequality. The illustrative point here is that people with a lot of money their assets are making money 
faster than other people are able to grow their wealth by simply working. That wages aren't being raised at the same rate that people with money are able to grow their assets. Person A has enough of a financial cushion to invest his savings in things like land, equipment, company stocks, maybe a master's degree. Over time, these investments yield a higher rate of return than the rate of growth of the economy in general. Which brings us to Person B. Say he's working hard and making $100,000. Year over year, the salary he gets for his labor alone won't increase fast enough to keep pace with the money Person A is making off his investments year over year. Thus... Wealth inequality. So do you see what they're saying in that video? Once your wealth gets to a certain value, once you have millions of dollars, your money will work harder than even a high income worker. That somebody that earns $100,000 a year, $150,000 a year, you have to be really educated, you have to be really valuable in the marketplace to earn that kind of salary. But even so, somebody that has enough money, just their assets, if they invest it responsibly, the amount of passive income it won't be $164. It'll be tens of thousands of dollars. They earn more through their investments than high income earners do going out and working every single day. That is what that video is stating. And of course, it's coming at it through like a societal, the social impact of wealth inequality, right? But I look at that video and I go, well, I have no control over wealth inequality. I can't really do anything to solve that issue, right? I'll leave that to other people. But I look at it and I say, what can I do to get more on that side where I don't have to work for everything that I make? What can I do to put my family in a situation where we have a lot of wealth that works for us and we don't have to be beholden to our employer and to other people for every dime that we get? That seems like a much more preferable situation to be in. And I think it's one that the most people can be in. I see this as a completely commonly shared goal. Over the past month, I've had so many emails, I can't even respond to them all. But I know for one thing for certain, this goal of generating passive income, of not having to work for every single dime you make, is a commonly shared goal. I have so many emails from everybody, from white people, black people, Hispanics, Asian, Indian, people from Europe and Canada, from the US, every single age, young people that are 17 and 18 and just learning about this, that are getting an early start, people that are in their 50s and 60s that are just starting to invest, and everybody in between. This is something that everybody wants for themselves and for their family, to be able to grow wealth, to be able to generate passive income, to not have to be concerned about being financially stable in the future. And the goal of this channel is to be illustrative of a specific way to do that, that I don't think has a large bar to entry. The stock market is not an intimidating thing to invest in. You literally just have to look at it as, look at these great companies, Home Depot. Do I want to own a piece of Home Depot? Do I think it's selling at a good price of what it was historically? And even if picking individual companies seems intimidating, that's something that's scary to you. You can pick ETFs and a lot of them accomplish the same goals. You can find ETFs that will invest in the same type of company that you want to invest in. I'm doing that with my retirement account. So this is something that everybody can do. Everybody should do, in my opinion, that will lead to a lot more stability and financial freedom. I'm a huge advocate of investing. I think that everybody should do it. The different types of investing you can do, whether you're investing in real estate and going out and buying rental properties, whether you're investing in growth companies or index funds or dividend stocks, whatever you're doing, I think all of that is better than nothing. There's only a few styles of quote unquote investing that I actively discourage people to do that I do not think is a good idea. And I know there's a lot of people that disagree with this. There's a lot of people that do these styles of investing that say that I don't know what I'm talking about or, you know, I, I don't know how to do it personally, so I shouldn't uh, talk about it, right? I'm talking about day trading and swing trading. I think that most people 
should not day trade or swing trade. It is a huge waste of time. I think that it has potential to lose a lot of money. I think a lot of the industry around these type of tools of buying options, day trading and swing trading, a lot of times they're centered around greed. Just flat out greed, people wanting to make a lot of money in a very short amount of time. That they don't actually want to just put their money to work. They want to simply win the lottery. They want to win an easy bet. I'll show you one video of somebody that this did not turn out well for. That they got themselves into a lot of financial trouble for trying to make quick money. This is a video posted on an investing forum. And he's using the Robinhood app. And what he did, this, this video shows it has him on the, the top of it overlaid on the Robinhood app. And what he did was he bought puts on Apple and he did so using a lot of leverage. Now, there's so much risk involved in there. The fact that he bought this on leverage means that, that not only can he lose his own money, which he has about $7,000 of his own money in this, but he has the opportunity to lose other people's money, which would make him a debtor, right? So he used margin, he lended money from somebody else, he bought puts on Apple, and then he's recording it live to see the result of when Apple opens up and which way it's trading. So let's just go ahead and look at it. Right there, where it says total return, $6,900, up. That's where he's at right now. But we can continue to watch how this goes. And this is unfolding live. This is like a few seconds this happens. starts to trade upwards, which if you buy puts, you're hoping that it starts to trade downwards. Look at that. <coughs> Do you hear that guttural <coughs> sound? That is the sound of somebody that just lost $40,000 in about 10 seconds. I keep playing it here, and you can even see what direction it goes. He's at negative 42000 now. Look at that line. One week, straight down, because he bet the wrong way on it. Now, if this went the other direction, he would have made a lot of money, right? And he would have posted online about how easy options are, how easy money is. He would have lured more people in to following his same advice, and more people that are unsuspecting of the downside would go and continue to try to replicate the same thing and probably lose a lot of money in the process. But I think it's important for people to see this side of it. When you go into these type of risky trades, this is the type of thing that you're venturing into. What you're doing here is not the same thing. Buying shares in these companies is simply just buying a part of a company. What he did in that video to lose a lot of money is he made bets. He gambled. He bet on the price moving a certain direction at a certain point in time, and he gambled wrong. He just flipped the coin with his money, and he used leverage to do it in that situation, which was just playing with fire, but he bet in the wrong direction you're not doing the same thing here. Owning shares and companies is a very long-term thing. This is how you grow your money over time. Now, a few things I just wanted to mention in the news. First of all, AT&T, which is one of my larger holdings in my portfolio, one of the best dividend payers, it just laid out another three-year plan of how they're going to pay down a lot of debt, which makes their dividend they're paying a lot safer right now. So, from previously, just a couple months ago, their dividend is now safer with this plan that they've laid out. They've settled some disputes with an activist investor, and they unveiled HBO Max, which is the new streaming bundle that they put together. Hey, what's all the excitement about? Are you ready to see something different? This is the moment I've been searching for. 
Ready? Ready. Take the red pill, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. All right, boys, let's go launch this rocket. That's their little trailer for the service. Really, the nice thing about this is that HBO is already $15 a month. That's what you would pay if you want HBO's content right now. But pretty much all they've done is gathered together a lot of other content from a lot of different networks and, and different shows and movies and TV series, bundled that together, called it HBO Max, and said the pricing is going to remain the same. And current HBO subscribers are going to just continue to pay $15 a month, the same thing they have, except they're going to unlock all this new content. So... I think a pretty good offering. They know that they can't charge more because now all of a sudden $15 a month is a lot of money for a streaming service. When you have Disney and Apple both coming out with $5 a month, you don't want to charge too much more than $15 a month. So that's a pretty good update from AT&T. The next thing I wanted to touch on real quick is the Fed just cut rates for the third time this year. I think it's going to be the only time that they cut rates this year and possibly next year. I know that the Fed usually likes to get its business done before election years. So they're not looking to fiddle with the economy 2020 because Jerome Powell does not want to be blamed for changing the economy, messing with it, and changing the direction of the elections. So he got this rate cut in. He thinks that he set the economy up good for 2020. And I think that they're going to want to leave it as much as they can. If it shows signs that things are still not going great, they're not going in the direction they want, they could do another cut in 2020. But... He's tried to say that he doesn't want to do that. So along with the rate cut, as predicted, we have Robinhood now offering 1.8% APY. Just before this rate cut, it was 2.05%. They're forced to take that down a quarter percentage. Now they have pushed down their cash management to 1.8%. That's in line right now with where Ally Bank is at 1.8%. So we'll see if Ally Bank will move theirs down further. They haven't after this rate cut. But there's a lot of these high interest banks. They get affected by this downward pressure of rates. So we'll see which ones are able to hang on to their higher interest rates. And the last bit of news I want to mention is Bill Ackman. This is an activist investor, a billionaire. He said that he believes WeWork is worth zero. That was what he said in this Financial Times report. And part of it, he says, I just want to quote one part of this article. I think it's kind of funny. Quote, I think WeWork has a pretty high probability of being zero for the equity as well for the debt. Ackman, founder of hedge fund Pershing Square Capital Management, said in a Robin Hood interview conference on Tuesday, according to the Financial Times, quote, as someone who has put good money after bad, I think this looks like putting good money after bad. He's saying SoftBank Care is making a mistake in WeWork. And I think I agree with him. I bet at this point, SoftBank just doesn't want to lose the deal. SoftBank is a Japanese bank, and I don't think that SoftBank wanted to see one of its investments go this bad and get purchased by J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank of America or another American bank. I think that that would look terrible for SoftBank. So to me, it seemed like they just wanted to save face. They wanted to keep holding WeWork and keep investing in it, and they're going to chase that loss no matter what. They're going to keep trying to make that company profitable. So we'll see where the valuation goes in the future and if SoftBank really is able to turn WeWork profitable. Okay, let's get to some questions. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. The first one says, Hey, Joe. Dude, first of all, thank you for sharing your experiences on YouTube. It's been a huge blessing just listening to you and applying different principles in my financial life. I wanted to ask you for advice since I don't think you've made a video addressing this yet. I'm 25 and I want to open my Roth IRA, but not sure if I should do it through a robo advisor or through a financial advisor. I contacted a local financial advisor and his fees are 0.6% for the first 50,000, 0.55% between 50 and 100,000, and 0.5% after that. 
He uses Voyage where there are no transaction fees, it's just his record keeping fees. Hope you read this, thank you again. So you're wanting to know whether you should use a financial advisor that will charge you 0.6%, 0.55% of your your money that he's managing every single year. So like if you had $100,000, he'd take roughly 550 bucks a year. Uh, that's not really an expensive management fee. You know, this this financial advisor that you found, it doesn't sound like he's trying to rip you off or anything. A lot of them, I think the normal pricing is somewhere around 1% to 2%, somewhere there. Usually like a percent and a half is what they'll charge for financial advisory. Um, would I do that? No. I wouldn't give my money to someone else to manage for free. So if, if he didn't charge anything for it, if it was just a free service, I wouldn't do that. Because I, I could pick a robo-advisor, and I don't really do that. I pick M1 Finance, which can kind of act like a robo-advisor, but right now I'm not taking any robo-advice. I'm just using it as a broker for free to invest, but I'm picking out the investments. So I like being in control of the investment decisions I'm making. Not some kind of second-hand control where I say, yeah, I want a portfolio that's less risky, and then they construct a portfolio that's less risky. I like literally having control of every single holding I purchase and the exact percentage of that holding. So that's the level of control I like. For people that don't want that much control, you don't want to really focus on it. I think that this is a pretty decent option for people. You know, there there is a place for financial advice. Some people are terrible with finance. Some people would be better off just handing it over to somebody else. But um, no, I don't think the fee is outrageous here. I think it's an option you could choose. If it were me, I would just go with the robo-advisor. I think that what financial advisors typically do for people is exactly what robo-advisors do. They'd say, do you want a conservative? Do you want a aggressive portfolio? Do you want to be invested in stocks or bonds or real estate? And then they just invest in it. And you can do the exact same thing using a robo-advisor. You can literally just pick out what type of portfolio you want, put your money in, and then you skip the fees. You don't have to pay the yearly fees for hundreds of dollars. So I think in my situation, I'd pick the robo-advisor. But if you feel more comfortable being able to talk to somebody and have somebody there to support you, being able to have a human support you instead of just a, instead of just having it automated, you could go with the financial advisor. I don't think 0.55% is a ripoff by any means. Next question is from Instagram. He says, hey man, question about your YouTube channel. Would you find it interesting yourself to create a video regarding the Democratic slash Republican portfolio with upcoming elections? I think it would be super cool and also super important to understand the impact that each party has on the market. Let me know your thoughts. Yeah, I, I actually thought that this was an interesting idea. So you're saying to look at how you would manipulate or construct a portfolio based on which party gets elected. Um, I could look at that. I would certainly want to wait until we get closer to actual elections before trying to predict who's going to win on the Democrat side and be the front runner. Right now, there's like 10 people running. So it's impossible to even say what financial policy will win out, what candidate will win. And then there's a lot of things you have to look at because certain candidates in the primaries, they say very drastic things to top each other, right? Democrats are always trying to one-up each other on the different financial policies, on the different social policies, because they need to make a lot of noise to get noticed in the field if you're competing with 10 other people. And that's how it is on both sides. If Republicans were running this year against an incumbent Democrat, that'd be the same thing. But right now, you have to give it some time, because when they get in the generals, they'll have to have a broader appeal, then they might change some of the rhetoric and the policies that they're saying. And, you know, we'll see what type of financial policies and platforms went out from the Democrat Party. As far as tailoring a portfolio, I do think that there are certain industries that would be hit harder and ones to potentially be cautious of. You have Medicare for all. So that could be a target with healthcare. So there might be some adjustments you could make to your portfolio to insulate those type of risks. And I think that you would see that play out 
Um, what would happen is investors would look at the probability of that person winning the election. And then when they do win, the probability of them getting this different type of legislation, these policies passed. And then if they did get the policies passed, how they would actually affect those industries. You'd have a lot of banks and hedge funds do that kind of studying once they get close to the elections. And then they'll judge the risk of holding those companies or those sectors. So I will probably do something like this. It'll just be closer when we actually see who's going to win out from the Democrat side and what their policies end up being after they make it through the primaries. Because a lot can change over the course of a year. So... Um, interesting thought there. I'll probably follow up on this more. Amelia says, hi, Joseph. News has definitely been interesting these past couple of weeks, and I can't wait to see how the markets react and how your portfolios grow. My question is regarding M1 Finance and reading the statements and then inputting that data into a dividend tracker. I'm not exactly sure how to do it, so any advice would be great. Thank you. By the way, with some of the recent topics regarding Blizzard, does this mean that you have an interest in esports? What do you think about it, and do you think it will be comparable and profitable to traditional sports in the near future. Keep up the great work. Uh, the first part of your question there on inputting that information from M1 Finance into the dividend tracker, uh, you go to settings on M1 Finance, then you go to documents, and then you select the statement for the month that you're looking to input. Typically, the statement will be released like four or five days into the month. The previous month will be released. So you go into that statement. On the top left, it'll have a section that says your starting portfolio value, the ending portfolio value, and the amount of dividends earned during that time period. That's where I get all the information that I plug into the dividend tracker. Very simple. You just download those documents every month. You look at the top left and look at those three bits of information and plug that in. Now, the second part of your question where you say, you know, by the way, the recent topics regarding Blizzard, do I have an interest in esports and do I think it will be as profitable as traditional sports? So yes, I do have an interest in esports. I think it's a just a really interesting industry. Um, it's definitely growing. The amount of money made by gaming companies, by esports, all of that combined is enormous and it's growing really rapidly. It's growing much faster than traditional sports. So there's a lot of a there's a lot of opportunity there. The reason that I haven't invested in it so far is because it's still figuring itself out. It's very fractured. Sometimes one company will come out with a really hit game that will get a lot of the attention. It's, it's really difficult to guess what those are going to be. I just haven't found a really good route in investing in this. All of it is fractured between multiple companies. Rarely are they stable dividend payers. They don't really fit well with the investing philosophy that I've had. So even though I think that there's value there, there's potential places to make good returns there. It's something that so far I've just avoided out of my portfolio. I wouldn't feel comfortable just picking one of these companies, putting it in my portfolio and dollar cost averaging into it without really paying too much attention to it. They're more really active investments that I'd have to really keep up on the news to see what's going on with them. So that's the reason I haven't invested in it. But I do think that esports is going to become bigger and bigger. Eventually, I think it might surpass traditional sports because there's a lot of people interested in video games, I think more so than traditional sports at this point. All right, well, that's going to be it for me. If you guys haven't liked the video, subscribe to the channel, share it with some friends. We're all trying to invest, build up our wealth over time. This is the whole goal of it. If you guys want to support the channel more directly, as well as talk to me in between videos, you can join a Discord. There's a Patreon that you sign up for, and then it gives you access to a Discord channel. And there's a lot of people there. We've been having some fun discussions, so you can consider that as well. Otherwise, I will talk to you guys next time.